0: Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I sound funny. (laughs) Lord, we ask you to bless your word today. uh, We are, as Roy said, fortunate that we can gather in a place and uh, sing praises to you and learn from your word, and then fellowship, and enjoy the company of the saints. Pray you would anoint me this morning, Lord, and uh, let your word go out and bear fruit in every heart that is represented here. We ask in your name, amen. After a long illness, a woman died and arrived at the gates of heaven. The gatekeeper came by and the woman said to him, this is such a wonderful place, how do I get in? This isn't a true story, by the way. You just have to spell a word, the gatekeeper told her. Which word, the woman asked. The gatekeeper replied, all you have to do is spell the word love. The woman correctly spelled love and the gatekeeper welcomed her into heaven. About six months later, the gatekeeper asked the woman to watch the gates of heaven for him that day. While the woman was guarding the gates of heaven, her husband arrived. I'm surprised to see you, the woman said. How have you been? I've been doing pretty well since you died, her husband told her. I married the beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were ill. And then, believe it or not, I won the lottery. After taxes, we had $200 million. I sold the little house that you and I lived in and bought a big mansion up in Connecticut. And now my new wife and I have done nothing but travel the world. We were on vacation in Hawaii, and I went water skiing today. I fell, the ski hit my head, and, well, here I am. By the way, how do I get in? You just have to spell a word, the woman said. Which word, her husband asked. His first wife looked at him and smiled and said, spell Czechoslovakia. (laughs) I realize that story is terrible theology, but it does make a good point. It can be very tempting to want to get revenge on people that we think have wronged us. In today's lesson, we're going to see that although David is going to have several opportunities to take revenge, he rises above it and takes the high road. Welcome once again to our study in 2 Samuel. Last week, if you recall, we left Israel, who had all fled to their tents after the failed rebellion of Absalom, whom they had all followed. You can imagine their consternation and concern about how David would deal with them now that he is back in power. They are probably wondering if he, out of revenge, is also going to ask them to spell Czechoslovakia. But instead, David is going to show them New Testament grace and mercy, even though they have wronged him terribly. We left them with these words on their lips back in verse 10. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? Now here in verse 11, David has pretty much the same question which is where we will pick up our account this morning. Look at verse 11 with me. So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house. You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? When David finally arrived in Jerusalem, it was a signal to the nation that the rebellion has ended and the true king was now back on the throne. But en route to Jerusalem, David made some royal decisions that sent out other important messages to the people. His first message was that he wanted the kingdom to be united under one king. The old prejudices and the animosities must be buried and the nation now must come together. To bring this about, however, would involve extending the royal scepter of forgiveness to many people who certainly didn't deserve it. And although it hadn't been written yet, David modeled the truth found in Ephesians 4.31 where we read, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiven each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We would all understand if David was bitter at this point in his life. The nation of Israel even admitted last week in verse 9 the debt they owed to David's sacrifice and leadership. Let me refresh our memories. Verse 9 said, All the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king, speaking of David, delivered us from the hand of the enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. Do you know why I think David was able to forgive those people and move on into the future? I think just like verse 32 in that Ephesians passage, David was able to be tender-hearted and forgiving because he knew that he had been forgiven so much himself. Remember, after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, when David had Uriah murdered, God placed that murder firmly at David's feet. And if you didn't know, both those sins were punishable by death. In fact, Nathan the prophet even told David after his confession that he would not die because of these sins, which was a pure act of grace on the part of God. So perhaps with Nathan's voice still ringing in his head, David knew that he who had been forgiven so much should also forgive those who had wronged him to a much lesser degree. After I typed that, I thought to myself, that is certainly a lot easier to type than to live out. And here's the thing. If I am not careful, if someone offends me, I'm normally not the kind of person that will do something to get back at you in a revenge sort of way. Instead, I can have the tendency to just pull back away from you and no longer ever give you the ability to get close to me again to hurt me. And that is just as wrong and just as sinful as me slashing your tires. But David, to his credit, rises above that sort of thing. So in verse 12, David asked the tribe of Judah, you are my brethren, you are my bone, you are my flesh. Why then are you the last one to bring back the king? You see, Judah was the royal tribe, and David was from the tribe of Judah, and not only that, the capital city was in Judah. And so it was the elders of Judah who had first made him king, and so he logically turned to them first for help. And using his two priests as mediators, David told the elders of Judah that the Israelites and the other tribes were talking about returning the king to Jerusalem, but he had heard nothing from his own tribe. Absalom had begun his rebellion in Hebron, which was in Judah, and because of that, the leaders of Judah must have cooperated with him. So now would be a good time to display their allegiance to David, their rightful king. Look at verse 13, please. And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man. So they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. Once again, the problem that both the northern tribes and the people of Judah faced was whether David would take reprisals against them for their rebellion. David's surprising word to Amasa signaled that retribution was not on his agenda. You see, Amasa had been appointed commander of the enemy army by Absalom, and yet David maintained and honored Absalom's appointment but why replace Joab as general for one thing David has surely learned by now that Joab was the one who had slain Absalom in disobedience to the king's command and even though he deserved death Absalom could have been taken alive and brought back to David to be dealt with later not only that Joab did not have the authority to defy his king and act as judge and executioner. So was this also David's revenge on Joab for the death of Absalom? It very well could be. But the promise to Amasa, a fellow member of Judah, had the more immediate function of assuring the people of Judah of David's post-rebellion generosity. Now, the news of this appointment must have shocked the leaders of the nation And then brought them great relief, for it meant that David was pardoning all the officials who had followed Absalom. Now keep in mind, Amasa had been Absalom's general, whose assignment it was was to search for and kill David. But now David was making his nephew and Joab's cousin the leader of this great army. Verse sixteen, please. And Shimei the son of Gera, a Benjamite who was born in Bahurim. Hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Zeba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him. And they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household, and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gareth, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my Lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my Lord the king. It seems that both Ziba and Shimei, with at least some of their people, hurried across the Jordan to meet David in order to escort him back, these two men seemed to have been excessively eager to sort out their standing with David, and each for their own reasons. David's surprising return had simply overturned their world, and so they were anxious to secure their, they anxious to ensure their security in the renewed kingdom of David. Now, of course, we should all remember our good friend Shimei who we said was the Ernest T. Bass of the Old Testament. Well, actually, I said that, but it makes me feel less crazy if I include you. If you remember, he was the cat who from a safe distance was throwing rocks and calling down curses on David and his companions. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't burn your bridges? That's kind of what Shimei is facing right here. He had made a major miscalculation, not expecting David to survive the rebellion. It was a massive oops moment. But how different from the furious man who earlier had hurled stones and curses at the apparently defeated king. You can almost imagine the scene, can't you? Hey, Dave, you know I was just kidding about that cursing thing, right? You know me always with the jokes. Now, it's tempting to regard Shimei's repentance with cynicism because his change of heart seems very convenient. It is doubtful Shimei would have ever regarded his behavior on the day that David left Jerusalem as wrong if David had not returned as the king. Shimei's repentance appears to be thoroughly self-serving. But apparently, not everyone was buying his story. Look at verse 21. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. Here we see Abishai again. If you recall, Abishai wanted to cut Shimei's head off back in chapter 16 when he threw rocks at David. So Abishai was like, just let me kill him a little bit. Now, with these two brothers, the sword is the answer to everything. It's the old saying of, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Now, it's interesting that the Hebrew word for adversary there in verse 22 is the word Satan. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, this becomes the proper name of Satan, but here it refers to one whose business it is to entice and accuse a man. But Abishai's way of vengeance is not David's way. There used to be an old-time radio show called Amos and Andy, Amos was being bossy and mean. He would often poke Andy in the chest with his finger to make his point. One day, Andy got sick of us. He decided, I'm going to fix Amos. So he strapped dynamite around his chest underneath his coat and then said to himself, the next time Amos pokes me in the chest, I'm going to blow his hand off. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) But... That's what happens when we try to get revenge. When I try to hurt someone else, I may do them some damage, but in the process, I'm only to cause myself much more pain. What did David do? He forgave him. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I bet that every one of us in here can probably bring up someone in our mind who said or did something to us in the past, and we have struggled to forgive them. And yet we all know the verses that tell us we should live with an attitude of forgiveness. How about this passage out of Romans 12? If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the Lord's vengeance. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals of fire upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But we can have the propensity to think, yeah, I'll be glad to heap burning coals on their head and hope it burns their brains out in Jesus' name. Of course, that's not what that verse means. I know who I am, David said. I know what God has called me to do, and I don't need anyone to defend my position. Over the years, I've noticed that the most secure individuals, like David, are those least likely to cut down others. Because I think we can have the tendency to cut down others when we are offended by them. And perhaps when we feel the need to strike back at someone who has offended us, It could be indicative of our own lack of security in who we are. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Now there's no doubt that Shimei deserved to be killed for the way he treated David, and Abishai was willing to do the job. But David stopped his nephew just as he had stopped him before. Now, if you remember the first time that David stopped Abishai, his reason was that the Lord had told Shimei to curse the king, so David would take his abuse as from the hand of the Lord. But now his reason for sparing Shimei was because it was a day of rejoicing and not a day of revenge. But even more, by pardoning Shimei, King David was offering a general amnesty to all who had supported Absalom during the rebellion. And David kept his word. And he didn't have Shimei killed for his crime, but when David was about to die, he warned Solomon, his son, to keep an eye on Shimei. And so Solomon put him under house arrest and told him not to leave Jerusalem. But when Shimei disobeyed the king, he was taken out and slain. It would seem that Shimei had a weakness resisting authority and treating God's appointed ministers with disdain. Shimei didn't appreciate David's mercy or Solomon's grace, and his independence and his arrogance finally caught up with him. Look at verse 24 with me. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was, when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? We see that because of his mourning over what had happened to David, Mephibosheth had not cared for his feet, trimmed his mustache, or wash his clothes. If you want people to avoid you for the rest of your life, that is the recipe for doing that. This guy looked like animal off of the Muppets. Not only that, he probably smelled worse than he looked, and to top it all off, his toenails are all yellow and gnarly and probably look like a bunch of corn chips. So David asked Mephibosheth directly why he had not gone with him from Jerusalem. You'll remember that at least. (laughs) Mephibosheth's answer indicated that Ziba had refused to help his lame master saddle and mount the donkey that would carry him to David. Instead, as we heard earlier, Ziba went out to David himself with loads of provisions and most likely told this slanderous lie about Mephibosheth. Now David had responded by passing all Mephibosheth's possessions Over to Zeba. Mephibosheth, however, understood that he did not have a right to ask the king for anything. He was content just that the king had finally returned. What about us? Do we say to our king, I don't care about your gifts, I don't care about what you can give me, I only want you? That's something we each have to answer in the privacy of our own hearts. Mephibosheth said, I don't care about the gifts, David. I just want you. I hope we can all say that about the Lord this morning. This is a place I'm trying to get to in my own life. Like Paul, I want to be able to one day truthfully say, I know what it's like to live in abundance. I know what it's like to live in need. And I have learned, whatever the circumstance, I can be content and wherever God places me. I've found that is also a lot easier to quote than to live, by the way. Either way, Mephibosheth only cared that his lord and king had returned. And for that reason, his mourning has turned to joy. And like Mephibosheth, those who have experienced the kindness of the greater son of David... Know that they have no right to ask God for anything. They find contentment and joy in knowing that their king is coming back one day to reign perfectly forever. Verse 29, please. So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Zeba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Brother, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. And so David is kind of put in a difficult place, and I don't know if you've ever been there, where you have two people who are both telling their side of the story, and they are absolutely diametrically opposed to one another, and yet neither one of them are going to move from their version of the story. So maybe David, with all the pressure around him in retaking the throne, doesn't have the time to work through all these details. And so he can't be absolutely sure which one of them are telling the truth. Now, David's response in this section isn't easy to understand. On the surface, he seemed to be saying, there's no need to go into the matter again. You and Zeba just divide the land. David's response sounds just a, a little bit abrupt. His decision to divide the land and reversing his own decision means either he could not decide who was telling the truth or perhaps he was not inclined to bother finding out who was, and he was just taking the easy way out. But I bet Mephibosheth's reply must have stunned David. Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as much my lord the king is back in peace to his own house. As we close this morning, could there be more to this section, though, than what we just read on the surface? This situation reminds us of the case of the dead baby that Solomon had to solve when he was offered to divide the living child. The child's true mother protested, and that's how Solomon discovered her identity. Well, unlike a living baby, land isn't harmed when it is divided, but perhaps David was testing Mephibosheth to see where his heart was. Maybe David is showing wisdom in the same way his son Solomon would one day show wisdom. When Mephibosheth said to David, I don't care about the land... I'm just glad you're back. I think David knew it was Mephibosheth who was telling the truth all along. Either way, the lame prince was cared for as Ziba worked the land. It was the fact that Mephibosheth desired the giver far more than the gift that showed his true allegiance. And I pray we all have that same attitude concerning the king of kings this morning. I pray, Father, you would burn that into our hearts, that you are truly enough. In whatever circumstance we find, good or bad, we know, Lord, that you are all that we need. I pray, Father, you would help us to learn that as we walk this walk. We ask in your name. Amen.